Nehemiah had come home from his assignment in a distant land because he had heard that the wall of Jerusalem lay in rubble and the people were living in shame. And um, he comes back and despite intense opposition, he leads the people to rebuild the broken wall. And upon completion of this, uh, the reproach, the shame of uh, God's people was removed and there was this, this great celebration. The, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was reinstituted and reestablished. The Jewish people turned their hearts toward God for they knew that God had done this thing this great thing in their midst. They began to pour over the scriptures again. They began to read the scriptures, listen to the scriptures. A heart for worship returned to God's people. They were hungry, hungry spiritually to see their lives rebuilt, just like they had seen the wall rebuilt. They wanted personally to be right with God. And the only path to that was hearing the word of God. What is it that God expects? What is it that God has written down that we are to align our lives to? So that's what they did. They listened to the word. And they did that. In chapter 9, we see the response of what happens when people who have been estranged from God, who have lived unto themselves, and perhaps just lived in shame as if they can't approach God, when they return to the hearing of the word of God. And almost the whole chapter of Chapter 9 is a prayer. In fact, uh, if you're Bible trivia uh, people, this is the longest prayer in Scripture. Remember that, Nehemiah 9. Longest recorded prayer in Scripture. And as we delve into it and we kind of unpack it, I want us to remember, please remember this whole story of Nehemiah, that God does not exist for the sake of our enjoying Bible stories. (laughs) Bible stories exist for the sake of our enjoying God and who He is and how He works in the midst of these stories. They're not isolated events. Just as history is not some mere random set of events, history, as we look through it, reveals the divine hand of God in the midst of the human drama. The universe has been declaring the glory of God since before creation. The story of history reveals who He is, what He's like, His character, His renown, and the power of His name. And the reading of the Word is what spurred on the Jewish people in this chapter. So I want to read the first three verses and we'll Look at those for a little bit, and then we'll take excerpts from the rest of it. If, if you've got your Bible open to Nehemiah 9, I know the question is running through your mind. Is he going to read this whole thing? Uh, several, 30-some verses long. Uh, not all of it, but uh, a lot of it. So let's read the first three verses. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. This scene takes place just a few weeks after the completion of the wall and uh, the great celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles had had occurred. And uh, 
the Word of God had taken center stage, revealing uh, the waywardness, the sinfulness that they had been living in. And they had come under this, uh, this weight, if you will, of the glory of the Lord God as revealed in Scripture. And it, uh, it just kind of broke them. It kind of re- uh, it revealed the condition of their heart. And uh, I would, I'd make the point that God's glory reveals brokenness, reveals our brokenness. And when we come into direct contact through the Word of God, through relationship with Him, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, and we, we understand the glory of God, we are seen exposed. I thought about this. I think, you know, do we struggle with pride sometimes? Do we think we have it all figured out sometimes? And we, we read God's Word, and when we get a fresh picture of His glory, we get a fresh picture of the glory of the cross and the glory of heaven and what's going on in heaven, the glory of the incarnation, as we will look at in the next several weeks. Human pride that thinks it knows the best, uh, it just kind of takes flight in the presence of the very glory of God. We see ourselves truthfully as He sees us, and uh, it's like the sixth chapter in Isaiah when He is uh, given a glimpse into heaven and He sees the glory of God and what's going on in heaven. His response is, I am undone, a man of unclean lips. It says in the passage that uh, the Jewish people, in wanting to be what God wanted them to be, separated themselves from foreigners, confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers. Uh, They had been losing their culture. They had been marrying, intermarrying with uh, the locals, the non-Jewish people, and the Jewish culture, the Jewish faith was getting mixed and weeded down and... uh, facing a a path forward that if this continued, that would be extinct at some point. So could that have any relevance to the church today? I mean, mean, we do live in a different time, a different culture, and... uh, But as the people of God, could it be that uh, the people of God sometimes become mixed with the culture around us and uh, become less distinct? I mean, would you say there's a disturbing trend in Christianity these days to mix, to adopt values of the culture? And uh, I mean, we have seen whole denominations slide into what I would call more of a cultural faith. They think it sells better in our world today. It used to be that the doctrines of Scripture and the ways of Christ We're really the dominant force in the decision-making in our nation. Now sometimes I wonder if the doctrines of Christ and the ways of Christ are even the decision-making guidance for the church. I keep praying, and I know that many of you pray for a fresh dose of the glory of God, that we would see Him as He is and see ourselves as we are, that we would become a distinct and a separate holy people. 
Now the passage says that they stood in their place. They went to church and there were no chairs. Can you imagine? Please no, right? <laughs> they stood in their place and they heard the word of the Lord for three hours, a fourth of the day, which is what that would mean. They spent another three hours in confession and worship of the Lord their God. Six-hour services. You know, in our modern American way, I think our first take on this might be, glad we don't have six-hour services without chairs that include fasting, <laughs> which is the scene. But you know, I read this, and I, I, I catch the context. I see what God had done. And Isn't there a part of you that says, man, it would have been great to be there that day? To marinate in the Word of God. To recount the failures of our forefathers and say, Lord, not us, not on our watch. To praise Him and worship Him. Nobody's looking at the time. Nobody's wondering about the time. Nobody's even concerned about lunch. We're all fasting. <laughs> Here's my point. God is not a 30-second soundbite drive through God. <laughs> Sometimes it is just powerful to park and think upon Him. You know, in our world today, we have fast food, we have microwaves, we have Google. Aren't you glad? We have little computers that fit in our pocket. We call them phones. and uh, We have access quickly to about anything we want. We kind of get used to it. We kind of want things to run on the schedule. We kind of want them to get over when they're supposed to get over. And uh, I remember when, a time when I was in Moldova in Eastern Europe and a local missionary, Eugene, and I went out to lunch. And uh, we got seated at our table and an hour later, the food was still not there. We were the only ones in the restaurant. I was concerned. And I said to Eugene, I said, don't you think we ought to see if anybody else is still here, you know? What's going on? And uh, kind of half joking, kind of half truth, he said to me, he says, why are you Americans always in such a hurry? <laughs> I don't know, that stuck with me over the years. One of the things that we have lost in our culture is the Perhaps the value of stopping and thinking deeply about things. To ponder the Word of God. To read a phrase in the Word of God and just stay there for a while. We don't just stop and think about the goodness of His God or His faithfulness throughout our lives. Even when we were rebellious, He was pursuing us and... Uh, Perhaps we don't spend time thinking of the challenges of our society and the battle that we face and uh, stay on that subject long enough for God to speak truth into us. I mean, don't you believe that God has a lot to say these days? I do. And I wonder if we have enough time to listen. I mean, you take the book of Nehemiah. I mean, nothing could be clearer throughout the book. Uh, 
Nehemiah has taken his time as we have walked through this, this book. After God put this project of rebuilding the wall on him, he spent four months contemplating, praying, hearing how God was going to solidify the call in his life, lead him, perhaps even changing things in his heart before he even made the trip to start. And even when he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he took time to survey the rubble. He didn't just jump right into it. He gave space for God to continually be speaking. And I would say that thinking that is spiritually productive is done in the quietness of God's presence. And it takes time. And so the prayer begins in verse 5 and extends for the rest of the chapter. And I don't have time to read it all, but... Uh, and you know why I don't have time to read it all? Because we're all so busy, right? I've got a limit today. Sorry, I couldn't pass that up. He starts out with the prayer. And he's just celebrating God. He says things like this. Bless the Lord. May your glorious name be blessed. You alone are God. You created all things and have given life to all of them. Even the heavenly hosts of angels bow before you. You, O oh God, established the Jewish people through Abraham. You fulfilled your promise. You are righteous. You saw the affliction of your people in Egypt. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You, God, made a name for yourself, which extends to this day. God, you parted the sea. You led your people. You gave them your word. You provided bread from heaven and water from a rock for their thirst. You brought them to the brink of your promised land, which you swore to give them. A little praising God for Jewish history. These first ten verses are, so simp are to simply recount the goodness of God towards His people. And I would contend that God wants us to remember what He has done. Amen. I grew up singing a song. Count your blessings. Name them, what? One by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. You ever do that? I mean, sometimes I just sit out on the back porch and just, just praise Him for He is the great Creator. Don't we have a lot of beauty in the world today? I praise him for the, the hummingbirds. You know, they can fly backwards. You know that, right? Beautiful trees. Beautiful trees. I praise him that he, uh, in my mother's womb, formed me exactly the way he wanted me. I praise him for he has, he has journeyed with me. He has walked with me through many of the tough seasons of life, and uh, even when I went my own way, he pursued me. I praise him. I count my blessings. And every one of us faces days that are kind of stressful, right? Situations that tempt us to kind of worry, fear, revelations of our own failures, and uh, 
Sometimes we fail and mess up and hurt people and uh, things that try to coax us into some place of despair and negativity. And those are prime candidates for count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings to see what God has done. Verse 16. After all of this wonderful glory to God and all of this recounting of His wonderful work amongst His people, the prayer takes a turn in verse 16. It begins with the word, but. In spite of all of this, But they, our forefathers, acted arrogantly. In the next 15 verses or so, there are six pairs, if you will, six expressions of Israel's failure and God's response to that failure. And I ask ask myself, why do the Levites, who are orchestrating this prayer, why do they feel compelled to remunerate all of the failure of their fathers. The people need to know how God is when we fail. And I would contend you need to know how God is when you blow it. I mean, will He forgive? Will He punish? Will He say that's one too many? I want to spend time in these six pairs. I'm just going to read through them. Uh, If you're holding a Bible, um, I'll try to give you where I'm at, but I'm going to skip around a little bit as I walk through this. Uh, 16th verse. Pair number one. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen. His response, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Verse 18, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt, the calf, the idol, and committed great blasphemies, their response. His response in verse 19, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Pair number three, verse 26, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you. Don't you get the impression sometimes, why didn't they get this? And cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so they, they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. There's that word again. His response in 27. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors and oppressed them. Okay, here God, now you're getting it. Judgment. Oh, but when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers 
who delivered them from the land of their oppressors. God's righteousness demands judgment. But judgment is not the last word. As it says in James, mercy triumphs over judgment. Pair 4, 28th verse. But as soon as they had rest, in other words, they, caught, they gathered themselves, caught their breath, they did evil before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. Okay, Lord, judgment, good. It's about time. Oh, but when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Pair 5, 29b. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances. His response in 30. However, you bore with them for many years, put up with them, and you admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. You kept calling to them. And finally in 30. Yet, even now, they would not give ear. Back to the very first one. They would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hands, the hand of the peoples of the lands. He just can't help himself, folks. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. The bottom line is, for you are a, what? Gracious and compassionate God. You ever failed him? You ever thought that all I deserve is judgment? I've gone one too many. I've done that same sin now a thousand times. When I look at this list and uh, I see failures and rebellion and I see how God continually came. I think the strongest conclusion that I have is that God is much different than we are. <laughs> and I want you to know that I am forever glad that God is different than we are. One way that he is not like us is that he keeps pursuing rebellious people. He is relentless. Another thing that he does that's uh, for those of us who perhaps have kids or, you know, we, we have people close to us. So one thing that God does is he lets his kids, he lets those people close to him suffer. To be captured. To be enslaved. To be exiled. He allows things to happen to people he loves dearly that causes pain in their life. This is an important point. God allows things that he could prevent. Could he prevent you from ever suffering? Sure. And I hope you notice throughout the recap of Jewish history here that God has one motive. 
And it's not to make their life comfortable and easy. He has one motive, to bring them where? To Him. That they may enjoy Him. That they may partake of His righteousness, His Spirit, His life. And He goes ahead and lets them be captured by the enemy and ruled by others as a motivation, if you will, that they would cry out to Him. Because when they were captured and they were enslaved or exiled, they cried out to Him. And one of the questions I hear a lot in the world today, if there is a loving God, why is there so much, right, suffering? You ever hear that? You see, the the premise of the question, though, presumes that God is like us. I mean, we want happiness, and we want good health, and we want lots of money, and we want successful careers, and we want perfect children, right? And we are absolutely positive that that's what God wants for us. And our prayers are often to coax Him into participating in these pursuits, right? Am I the only one that prays that way sometimes? I mean, he's the one that can make all our dreams come true. But why doesn't he? In fact, it seems as though he lets things happen that are in direct opposition to my goals. (laughs) You ever been there? God, I'm supposed to have this happiness and I'm supposed to have this personal peace and all this prosperity. What's going on? May I say it again? God is much different than we are. He sees the brokenness of the world. He sees the brokenness of your life. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to rescue us from that broken place. You don't want to agree with me, but you do. (laughs) Suffering rips at our dreams of worldly happiness. Worldly security. Suffering pushes us where? (laughs) To Him. And that's what he wants. 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice. Now before I read this, catch that first phrase. In this you greatly rejoice. You find such ecstatic joy in the following statements. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. It's just a little while and we're all just passing through this place. Heaven's still waiting. And these various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I greatly rejoice. Maybe you see your story in the story of the Jewish people. 
You desire to live a life of worship before God, but you get off track and uh, one day you find yourself captive. Maybe there's the awareness that I really am still dealing with this prideful arrogance or this stubbornness or... I just got to admit I'm greedy. I worry all the time. I doubt that he'll really hear my prayer. And so you, hear, you, you get to that place and you, you, you understand the need for repentance in your life and you come and you just say, I want to make it right with you, God. And there's this reconciliation. I know I'm forgiven. I just don't want any barriers between us. I want to be your man, your woman, your husband, your wife, your child. And it's all good and it lasts for a while, but the old patterns emerge again. The cycle is repeated. Failure, mercy, failure, mercy. Ever been there? You come back to again and make some, some more promises about your future behavior. Have you ever made promises to God about your future behavior? Don't do that. You can't keep them. But the cycle, failure, mercy, failure, mercy, failure, mercy, failure, mercy, continues. And the story the Jewish people told here in Nehemiah exposes the futility of the law to bring righteousness. Even after fasting and wearing sackcloth and throwing dirt on themselves, and uh, even after the confessing of the history of sin and the repentance, we read on and the cycle continues. The book of Nehemiah, which is the last book chronologically of the Old Testament, leaves us hungering for an answer. An answer. We're in a desperate situation. And 400 years after this scene, the answer is born in a little stable in Bethlehem. And he comes and he Gives us a new heart. Praise God. He says he puts a new spirit within us. It's not external behavior any longer. It is internal reality of God. And he causes us. He is the power, the, the cause that we bear to walk in the ways of righteousness. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, we were in a terrible situation. Failure, mercy, failure, mercy, endless cycle. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus lifted the cup at the Last Supper and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Through his blood, he seals for us the day of redemption. He declares that he will complete in us what he has begun. 
He tells us that we will have trouble in this world, but what? He has overcome the world. He tells us that greater is he that is in me than he that is where? (laughs) In the world. He tells us that he will take away our sinfulness and become sin itself. In an exchange, we will become what? The very righteousness of God. Praise the name of Jesus. In Christ, the impossible become, became possible. Romans 8.3 says that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by doing what? Sending His own Son. Because of Jesus, we don't live in the failure, mercy, failure, mercy cycle anymore. We boldly declare we have no righteousness of our own. And so we rest in Him, and we rest in His righteous ways. And if we catch ourselves, and sometimes we will catch ourselves back in the behavior-oriented cycle of failure, mercy, failure, mercy, we see it for what it is. It's the old patterns of the law declaring us sinful and guilty. You shouldn't have... Oh, terrible person. Guilty, of which Christ says you are no longer. And so we get off that old destructive way of thinking that our righteousness is somehow tied to our ability to obey, and we recognize that our righteousness is Him, and He produces obedience. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And so He is holiness in you. He is joy in you. He is strong in you. He is love in you. He is the life in you that you used to never think was ever going to be possible. He causes you to desire time with Him. To see the benefit of Suffering. To remember how many times He has blessed you. Maybe somewhere along your way you've forgotten some of these things. I do. And it's time to remember them again. As the psalmist said, to restore the joy of our salvation. Because in Him, the impossible (laughs) has become possible. Let's pray about it. Father, I thank You for uh, the story. Far more than a story, It, 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 it... continues to fit into this this grand narrative of the Bible. The Bible is not random events. There is this grand narrative of your creation and the fall of man and the pursuit of God for man, 
the redemption work of Christ on the cross and the, the giving of new life through the resurrection and the, the coming again of the Savior Jesus. And there's this grand story. And over and over as we read these Old Testament stories, we see how uh, God and man have, uh, have always had this drama and you have never changed and you have always been consistent and you've always been a relentless pursuing God. A God who brings the very holiness of God through Jesus into our lives that empowers us by your spirit that we may proclaim and sing praises to you. And not only with our mouth, but with our hearts, we lift our praise to you, knowing that uh, you have so many times seen us through times of difficulty. That we can hope in you as we see the culture around us decay. We can hunger still for the righteous word of God to take seed in the church and to be a people set apart, holy unto you. And so we as your people declare your greatness and your glory and your holiness. In the name, the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Let's stand together, please.